What can writing do to increase our sense of connection to each other and the planet? How can the arts inspire us to take action? Can one song save a forest? Rick Bass is an author and environmental activist. He won the Story Prize for his collection For a Little While and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for his memoir, Why I Came West. His work has appeared in, notably, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Esquire, and The Paris Review. He has been awarded multiple O. Henry Awards, Pushcart Prizes, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, and Guggenheim Fellowships. He is a founding board member of the Yak Valley Forest Council and also serves on the board of Save the Yellowstone Grizzly. Rick Bass, welcome to the Creative Process and the One Planet podcast. Thank you. So we're in for a treat since I believe you're going to share with listeners a work in progress, a children's book you're writing called The North Country. Yes, it's a children's story. And as is often the trope with these situations, they are orphans. They are living in the woods alone, trying to figure things out and make their way in a new world. They live in a landscape where there are four distinct seasons, summer, autumn, winter, and spring. And there's an old woman who lives up at the top of the mountain above them. And she's asked them to bring her food every day. And they're starting to figure out if a day goes by without them getting food to her, the seasons will freeze wherever they are. And it will be just one season. Their world will not be four seasons anymore. And so that's a lot of pressure on them. Perhaps, obviously, it's a bit of an allegory. The river that ran through the aspen and cottonwood grove beside our cabin froze each winter. I know such things seem impossible now, but this did happen. In the days after Christmas, we would make piles of branches and dead limbs at regular intervals along the river before lighting them at night and skating on the frozen river on skates fashioned from the curved rib bones of deer, each skate possessing a pair of ribs. The burning brush piles illuminated the river with a soft glow, as might street lights in London or Paris, and the waning of the firelight made it look like the river was moving again. Not that spring had returned, but that instead the river had been transformed to a tongue of liquid flickering fire, but cold fire, incapable of warming us, that we were on our own, could now only warm ourselves through our own exertions, that there were no more gifts. We skated in graceful ovals and figure eights. We wore our warm beaver hats and leaned forward with our hands tucked behind our backs like birds in flight, birds migrating great distances. And where were we being carried to? The future, I suppose. Some nights the sky would be clear and cold, so full of stars it seemed the sky was the real firmament, not the earth. Other nights it snowed, the flakes falling so slowly it seemed certain we were going backward in time, not forward. The dogs galloped behind us, jubilant, as on this very river we had seen wolves galloping behind deer and elk and even moose. Our breath rose into the falling snow with the two connected, our breathing and the snow falling. We skated through and between the bone-white trunks of the aspen and cottonwood that were not so much like the bars of a prison cell, nor we, the prisoners, making a daring escape, but instead just what it was, an aspen forest, one in which we had learned how to play, how to rest between the giving and have fun. The ice was dependable, already a foot thick. In some places we could see cold fish beneath us, perfectly motionless. Our fleeting shadows overhead must have seemed to them like the flights of large birds late to migration, flying through a burning sky or from a burning forest. If the sound of our skates grating across the ice roof of their world alarmed them, they gave no indication. They remained where they were, floating, bestilled, dreaming of wildfires and earthquakes, perhaps. 
but with their kind having been in the world so many millions of years, they surely must not have possessed the concept of a thing, anything, ever ending. Later in the winter, my brother would auger a hole down through the ice, peeling back like the shavings from a silver fruit, and he would lower a line of thread and a hook like an offering, and the fish would come join us, would be carried forward by us, within us, and to the old woman at the top of the mountain. And in the morning, our tracks would be gone, buried beneath new snow, and the fires extinguished. And when that happened, it was always as if a gate had been opened and we had passed through it. And now a true winter could follow in the manner of the wolves that galloped up and down the river. I think of the metaphor of the old woman, and I don't know if she is Mother Nature. I think you said that's written for young adults or for children, although it seems like it's an open story for adults. It's something that we can all sympathize, this kind of strange place where seasons are changing and what we counted upon our climate. It's not stable. I want to mention, because you're both a writer and a noted environmentalist, that in your home state of Montana, the recent legislation, which has been in favor of these young environmental activists, preserving their right to have a healthy planet. And I think that's a great sign of, of things to come and that maybe we'll be seeing more of that kind of legislation. Just tell us, what is your inspiration for writing The North Country and your reflections on these issues. I grieve the changes to the four seasons that are happening here in Montana. It's one of the great things about this place is having four distinct seasons. And now they're tilted, they're canted. Some are short, some are long. Some don't exist anymore. Or you know, we'll have a year where one doesn't quite ever happen. And that's unsettling, to say the least. I miss it. It's not a fear of what's coming. It's a grief for what's gone away. I guess it is an allegory. I'm mindful of the pressure that we're putting on the people who follow us, generations who follow ours, it's a lot of pressure on them to, number one, to increase duty and responsibility, almost impossibly going up the mountain each day, no matter the weather. And number two, the mandate to have fun, to be fully human, to be joyous, to celebrate and enjoy being in the midst of beauty. I was trying to reconcile those two seemingly opposing perspectives. A lot of my early memories are my father was from Montana and he took us there and just the freedom of that. I know that a lot of changes have taken place. In your time since you settled in Montana, you've been there a number of decades, but what are those changes that you have observed? I live in an anomalous region of Montana, the most northwestern corner. So the changes have not yet reached this corner of the state, but elsewhere in the state, seeing a lot of tree mortality, a lot of heat stress. There have always been insect epidemics throughout the forest. They're part of the cycle. But to see trees dying because they don't have enough water or because it's too hot, their cells have not evolved to open and close the stomach to release and conserve moisture, water. The rivets are popping out of the system. And I was wondering when you established this connection with nature as you're writing this book, North Country, you're reflecting on what I imagine what you were like, what your family and friends were like. So what were you like as a young man? And when did you establish this connection that you felt that you could be a voice for nature? As a young man, I was always comfortable in the out of doors. Growing up in Texas, a little bit of wild country would go a long way with me. When you're a child or a young person, you exist in a lot of imagination and everything is new to you. So you don't need really a big landscape to feel like you're in a big landscape. You can just make it up and think, oh, this is otherworldly or real worldly. But I began to, I guess, outgrow my captivity and wanted larger 
and wilder spaces. So I drifted north and west. And I went to school in northern Utah, studied geology, and then worked in Mississippi as a geologist, missed the west and those open spaces. So I came back looking for them and didn't find them until I got up to this very far away valley. In the book of Yak or Winter Notes from Montana, and just throughout your many books, you've become like a voice for nature, not just as an activist, but also within your fiction. And when did that take root? I shouldn't struggle so much to answer that question. I think as a writer, I just think of myself as a voice for my values, a voice for myself. And I just write what I love and what I don't want to see lost or what I grieve that has been lost. Shakespeare is reported to have said all literature is about loss or the recognition of loss. And that sounds like kind of a bummer, but I think it may be so. Even when you're celebrating something, implicit in that celebration is the acknowledgement that it is not permanent or not enduring, that it is a moment. And that's why you celebrate it. As an activist, I do often consider myself a voice for this landscape where I live, which has been hammered by extractive industries precisely because there hasn't been anyone living here to speak to illuminate what's happening. I am very aware as an activist that the stories I bring forth from this place will go to a larger world and will be a form of education and illumination. And I feel that heavily and daily. There's a lot of stuff going on in this corner of the world. You referenced the Children's Trust case where the court agreed that the children do have a right to a clean and healthy environment. And a couple of weeks later, a little group that I work with, we were in court suing the government over a proposed giant clear about hundreds of acres in an ancient forest. And we prevailed. And the judge said one of the reasons we prevailed was the government had not done a carbon assessment on their proposal. Government said everything is infinitesimal on its own, so it doesn't matter. The damage done by this 754-acre clear-cut would be infinitesimal in the scope of things. And the judge, it just took my breath away. He stepped back and he stopped and he said, well, by that rationale, does anything matter? It's flooding in Vermont. People are dying in the desert southwest. If this old forest doesn't matter, then what does matter? And it was just a beautiful line of reasoning. And so that was precedent setting also that now the Forest Service has to do carbon assessments before they propose to take away tens of thousands of metric tons per hectare of ancient trees. And as an artist, I just try and have fun and make beautiful images. But as an activist, I try and I guess I can't curse, but kick bottom and take names, as they say. And one of your current projects is climate aid. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's a great segue question. If I may digress, the interviewer, Terry Gross, was having a conversation with Johnny Cash late in his life. It was right after June had died. And it was an intense interview. And she was asking him questions about their relationship and 50 years of this and that. And he just went down into this deep, deep introspective place. And it was intense just for the audience listening. And he didn't know who Terry Gross was from Boo. And she was asking these great questions, each one more and more complicated. At the end of the interview, the little music comes on that says it's the end of the hour and have to wind things up. And you could hear Terry Gross accelerating into that outro. And thank you very much, Mr. Cash. It's been a real honor to have you, something like that. And instead of him saying, thank you, it's been a great pleasure. He was still down in that trance of where he'd gone in her questions. And he stopped and he said, well, I enjoyed it too, a great deal. And I was not prepared to think and talk about some of the things that we experienced today. But I just have to say, you're really good at what you do. And it was the first time he'd ever considered who she was and what she did. So all that to say, I feel like saying, wow, you're really good at what you do. That was a great segue to climate aid. So as an activist, it is a military campaign. It is a battle. It is a war. You use all of these violent terms and images of resistance and of, of conflict, because it is conflict. And I went into this old forest that we were seeking to defend and did successfully defend for now called Black Ram. 
And every kind of tree that's found in this ecosystem up here is in there. And every tree, every species has ancient representatives there. There are young trees there also where giants have fallen through the canopy and then the new young ones rush up in that slash of sunlight, almost like a note of music. The Forest Service had already spray painted the trees they were going to cut. It was garish. It was orange and blue, 20 and 30 foot stripes on the trunks of these 600, 700, 800 year old trees. It was just vandalism. And I usually get really, really angry in those situations. And that doesn't always help. It doesn't always work. And it's not sustainable. It's toxic. And I just got so tired. I just lay down on this incredibly soft, spongy forest floor, just bejeweled with emerald moss on these old rotting carcasses of the giants that had fallen. And then the new giants had grown up out of them. And just this museum of timelessness. And uh, I don't know how long I slept, maybe a minute, maybe five minutes, 15. I I don't know. But I woke up. I, I wasn't angry. And I walked out. The Forest Service had already built a road to the edge of the old forest, this gaping clear cut at the edge of it. And you could see the heat vapors coming up out of the clear cut and the brilliance of this white light. And it was really cool and beautiful gold diffuse light in the old forest. And I thought, let's make a guitar out of a piece of one of these giant spruces that they've knocked over building this road. I met a friend earlier that week who had showed me this incredible guitar made by a master luthier here in Bozeman named Kevin Kopp. And it was just that memory of that instrument was still in my subconscious. And I thought, okay, Cop makes his guitars out of tight-grained old spruce. I'll bring him a piece of spruce from this carnage at the edge of the old forest. And that's what I did. I went back with my chainsaw and cut out a length of it, wheelbarrowed it out, drove it to Kevin, kept watering it on the drive there, 425-mile drive, watering it like a baptism to keep it from checking and splitting it and strapped it in tight with a seat belt. And a year later, he made this guitar and it's just this exquisite instrument. It's like a Stradivarius. He is the best at what he does. And the sounds from that guitar are so otherworldly there. It's what he calls a fast attack, but a slow decay. The sound just bounces right out But then it's just so rich, even from the beginning, without having had the experience of opening up through decades or centuries of musicians playing it. It was ready-made. It's a little undersized guitar, about seven-eighth size, Nick Lucas style, but it has a really large sound hole. She can handle anything anyone throws at her, whether it's delicate or big sound. So it's just a great joy to be passing her around to musicians and asking them to play a song of resistance or celebration. And that's what we're going to do at Climate Aid. We're going to have it be an annual event like Farm Aid, not a totally original model. And we want it to be big. We want it to be Woodstock and its pivot point, the way the Children's Trust court case was pivotal, the way this Black Ram court case we had and won was pivotal. We want Climate Aid to be a celebration. And this one guitar exploring the question, can one tree save a forest? Can one song save a forest? And we think the answer is yes, we believe it will be. What we want to do with the forest that the guitar came from is establish it as a climate refuge, a place dedicated to storing as much carbon in long-term safekeeping as possible. We want the climate refuge to be really big. We want it to store a ton of carbon. We want it to be a, a focal point for increased scientific and artistic inquiry. We've brought in the world's leading climate scientist, and they've analyzed it, and they're proposing studies that should happen there. 
We brought in our country's leading artists, and they have experienced it and responded to it in their own way. The, the poet laureate Ada Lamone has been in and wrote a beautiful poem that went live yesterday in the Atlantic. You can find it there. And the poet laureate of Mississippi, Beth Ann Finley, came and wrote an incredible poem. We've had performance artists come and play music in the forest. So we want to establish the nation's first climate refuge. There is no such designation. We want it to be in Black Ram, this forest that almost got erased, a forest that was a thousand years old and almost went away, but we're getting a second chance. We saved it. Now we want to preserve it for another thousand years to study it. But we don't want to stop there. We want the government to establish a series of climate refuges all along the northern tier of the United States what we think of as a necklace of green, a curtain of green, and from there to go around the globe, across Northern Europe and Northern Asia, and then back around to Alaska. The amount of carbon that can be kept safely sequestered there is extraordinary. The numbers are almost unbelievable. Yeah, and the sense of well-being as well, not just the carbon it sucks in, but the yeah. oxygen. And I know Ada Lamone, she's been on our show, and I know her nature poetry and all her poetry, but it is particularly powerful. I want to say, I'm just, I was writing down some things you were saying, because this is what you do in your writing and even as you're speaking impromptu this is a museum of timelessness and we forget about it because it's an ancient forest but that's our heritage you can't get back those ancient forests or how many thousands of years to get back that ancient growth and it's not the same and the things that one could experience more easily in our childhoods, it's becoming more and more difficult when we see events like Black Summer and say in Australia and of course in America. I was wondering, how do you reconcile? On the one hand, I see it in your writing, I hear it. There is a beautiful romanticism. It's really linked to what I've always felt were some of the core values of America. You know, the frontier, it's written into so much, so many of the, the icons and I believe the values of America. And then the other hand, what is often romanticizes this consumerism and capitalism. How do we get those two romantic worldviews to reconcile their differences and work together for a better future? I think one will win and one will lose. And I think each is trying to put their foot on the throat of the other. And I wouldn't bet on our side prevailing, but we're certainly going to try. Well, my question is how we and listeners can involve ourselves in Climate Aid or in your projects and be helpful. Wow. Thank you for asking. Hardly anybody ever asks how they can help. There's this default passivity meter bred into us, I think. The situation is so overwhelming that we forget that one person can make a difference, like one seed making one tree can end up being something that leverages quite an enormous amount. My answers are not creative or revolutionary. I think word of mouth is huge. I mean, I know we have social media that essentially is word of mouth. Spreading the word, hey, there's this guitar that sounds incredible. And it, just telling the story. I believe stories matter and that stories are revolutionary. I think stories do determine our culture. And what stories we decide to celebrate and embrace determines our destiny, for good or worse. I think this is a good one. So, yeah, tell the story and, of course, vote, which those aren't really original answers, but I'm banking on it working. If it doesn't, oh, yeah. sue me. I think the way that you told the story of the climate aid and the guitar and how it originated. You were speaking as if you were writing almost. It sounded beautiful. And that draws me to the topic of your style of writing, your use of the senses and intense specificity to draw readers into the dream. And you've always told students meaning comes in through the details. Can you talk a little about your style and how you approach a story? Yeah, I've had the good fortune of reading a number of your stories. 
and I will respond to yours as I do to mine. You know, be specific. Show, don't tell. And it comes back to the five senses. If it's something we can touch, taste, scent, see, hear, then we're going to engage more deeply in the dream. And if it's an abstraction like beautiful or terrible, that's a kind of shorthand. And we lose a little bit of our connection with the reader every time we use an abstraction because beautiful is going to mean something slightly different to every different reader. And then you put another abstraction on that, terrible, say, that's going to mean something different. Abstraction by abstraction, a degree at a time, two or three degrees at a time, finally you're 180 degrees away from the reader. Whereas if it's something specific, a yellow-handled Phillips screwdriver with a bit of oil and, and the handle's worn smooth from where the protagonist's father had done kitchen repair in their home 75 years before falling off a ladder at the age of nine and breaking his neck. The specificity allows us to believe in the dream of the story. And that's what we as writers, where we want the reader to be. We want to believe in the dream of the story. When we're not being specific as writers, it's because we are groping and grasping for the story. I think the best writing is the most specific writing. And there's this phenomenon as a writer, when your story sags and you can't quite figure out what's gone wrong, you go back and look at it. And wherever your best writing is, that's where the secret heart of the story is. That's where the story was trying to come up from below. And when you subconsciously were most engaged with it, you could see it, you could taste it, you could smell it, you could feel it, you could hear it. William Carlos Williams said, no ideas, but in things. He said in five words what I just spent five minutes blathering about. No ideas, but in things. Yeah, don't tell me what something is. Show it to me. The meaning and the idea is in the image or in the sound or in the taste, whatever. You said earlier that telling stories is part of spreading the word about climate activism and that the stories we tell do matter. What do you think is the value of written stories or written fiction in an increasingly digitalized world, shorter attention span, people not being as much of readers as they used to be? What is the value of stories or of books that we should try to hold on to as times change? It's a form of art, and so it's important. The fact that it has been subsumed by other media is neither good or bad, tragic or otherwise. It, it simply is. But if you're good at it, and it's the art form that you have chosen or that has chosen you, then I think everything in the world is meant to do what it's meant to do. The, the Rumi line, that which one seeks is seeking one also. I think about this a lot in terms of species and conservation biology. What does our species fit in the world? You can say grizzlies exist to disseminate huckleberry seeds or to distribute white bark pine that is the underpinning of their ecosystem or that salmon and wolves have relationships with the physical terrain, not just each other, but the geology of their ecosystem. Everything is dialed in and connected and very complicated, sophisticatedly so. We, not so much. So what do we do? We're the newest ones here. We came here 180,000 years ago. The average lifespan of any species is about 9 million years. So we're still just toddlers. What is our gig? Why are we here? What do we do well? We build fire. That's unique. And we write poetry and we make art. A few other species make art too, but I think we're the only ones that do certain kinds of art. And writing is one of those forms. So I just have to believe it has a value to us that we may not fully understand, but it's important to do what you love doing. Either we'll hang on to this whirling globe or we won't, but it's when we get lost from what we do best that I think our chances of survival diminish drastically. Even when we dream, especially when we dream, we're free of our bodies and we're making art. Although I do have to say, I mean, I know that you're a close observer, of course, of the natural world. I think that all 
animals are also artists in their ways. Sometimes maybe we need to do it more because we're not so beautifully painted and we don't have natural bird-like singing voices, all of us. I, I see a lot of creativity in the natural world. But you said that William Carlos Williams, no ideas, but in things. So I was wondering, one of your books departed from the mold of your other books, The Traveling Feast. You finally took time to come to the table with your writing heroes or those that you had learned something from or just admired their work to travel to their homes and cook for them. And I wondered, that just reminded me of that because sometimes you might have these conceptual, artistic, distant relationships with these writers, but what is it that you learned mm. By going to their homes, cooking from them, the conversations you have around that, and just seeing it's the physicality. Again, a great question. I didn't know going in that I was looking for those things. It was more just an intuitive, instinctive response. I was middle-aged, and they were old and going away, and I wanted to see them and tell them thank you. Back to your question, Claire, about does writing matter with not many people reading anymore? Even if it gets buried in our culture, it's okay to get buried as long as it's there. It will re-emerge. A great story can never go away. It can be hidden, but like the proverbial light under the bushel, a little bit of it will still always come out. So I wanted the youngest generation of writers to meet the oldest generation of writers. And I felt like I was in the middle. So I could, by introducing teenagers to 90-year-olds, that's a way of those teenagers then carrying those sparks forward for another hundred years. That beautiful passage by Cormac McCarthy at the end of No Country for Old Men about the dream he has at the end of the story of seeing his father riding ahead of him in the darkness with the fire in a horn, how they used to carry fire in the old days, burning in a little buffalo horn or cow horn, about the color of the moon, he said. I love that specific detail at the end about the color of the moon. A digression. What I learned was most of my literary heroes were happy late in life. That was really fascinating to me. You think of writers as typically chronically unhappy and tormented, anguished and stuff. They were really happy. They were really funny. They were really smart. They were really orderly. They were really neat. That was a bummer. I didn't mind the other stuff, but I did not like the notion that they were really good because they were really neat. But they were. It was interesting. Maybe they had not always been neat. I don't know. They were generous, of course, but they also preserve their privacy and space and time. I think I was at McGuane's and we'd had this big party the night before and we stayed up way past 12, but at like 11 o'clock, Tom and Laurie went to bed. And at 10 o'clock the next morning, we had breakfast and stuff. And then Tom had to go to work and bid us goodbye while we're just kicking back in the breakfast room. I was at first bummed by their allegiance to discipline. I wanted to believe that by the time I get old, I will have said what I wanted to say, and I will use my last mortal years to make hikes that I haven't made that I've wanted to make, or physical life that's been sacrificed by all the hours at the desk. And it was kind of a bummer to realize they weren't taking advantage of the fact that they had written a lot and published a lot. They were still writing. And I thought, man, you can let up now. You can go live a life. This is your last chance. You're going to be gone soon. Go hang out with your wife. Go hang out with your children. Go hang out with your dogs. Go do something. Stop writing. And what I've realized as I've drawn nearer to their territory, they wrote because they love it. It is a journey and they're good at it. They like the daily, you know, I don't know, it's like doing a New York Times Wordle or something. It's just a routine and they love it. And it makes their brain light up and makes them, I think, grow as people. It's not about their readers. It's about them and their relationship to art. And they're artists, so they go meet it every day, the way a swimmer would go swim every day. That's yeah. what I learned. 
In The North Country, Rick Bass writes allegorically about the responsibility and pressure that is falling on the younger generations as the climate continues to change. The window of time to stop or reverse what is happening is shrinking, and young people are very much aware that the effects of climate change will intensify as they age, and that the responsibility to do something about it is on their shoulders. In her ruling on the Montana children's climate case, Judge Kathy Seeley wrote, because of their unique vulnerabilities, their stages of development as youth, and their average longevity on the planet in the future, plaintiffs face lifelong hardships resulting from climate change. The 16 young people behind the case are extremely admirable for what they've accomplished, but we can't expect every child who will be impacted by climate change to dedicate their lives to fixing it. As Rick describes, there is also a mandate for young people to have fun and be kids. How to do both at what feels like such a critical time for action seems an impossible question. Later in the interview, Rick stresses the importance of finding a style of activism with an element of fun, something that won't burn us out. Climate aid is one such project. Using music and the arts as a means of speaking out for the environment is especially important since, in Rick's words, it makes it easy for people to engage. Finding creative ways to bring together art and activism seems to be a promising avenue for the future of the fight against climate change. But of course, it isn't everything. Choosing meaningful battles, as Rick will describe, means also doing what needs to be done in terms of protests and legal battles. Still, it is vital to remember to take care of ourselves and each other in the difficult battles to be fully human and find joy in life. Although Rick doesn't see it that way, I believe his writing does speak for nature. The experience of reading his immersive prose evokes the sense of wonder one might find outdoors, in the forests of the Yak or the Rocky Mountains. It helps us remember and imagine these places we love, these places worth fighting for, which we may already be in the process of losing. If all literature is about loss or the recognition of loss, it is also about the will to hold on, to remember and preserve parts of the things we value and care about. In times like these, that feels especially important. Now back to the interview. You, of course, are a particular kind of writer anchoring the setting. I think it's important for a lot of writers, of course, but sometimes it is a kind of theoretical. And certainly when I'm writing, I forget that the characters have to eat. But I'm a physical person and you can tell very much that you're a physical person. And you probably get a lot of ideas just through that activity and the dreaminess and the connection that you can have. You've written about your dog. You've written about different relationships that you have alone, but not alone. That great conversation with nature. But other writers aren't necessarily like that. Sometimes you talk to them and I think that they know what a character looks like, but sometimes they won't describe even physically because they're at a different metaphorical place. It's not as specific in that visceral sense. I know what you're talking about. And it almost seems to me like manners. You want to take care of the reader. You and the reader are going on a journey and you want them to feel settled. You also want to push yourself as a traveler through the story. But yeah, it's an interesting relationship. And I know what you mean. Some writers get out ahead of the curve and assume that the reader is going to follow them. And it's like, if you're not interesting, I'm not going to follow you. You don't take my participation in the story for granted. That's how I feel as a reader. I don't want to be spoon fed, but also don't forget that I'm here. Yeah. Give me something good. I've definitely found myself reading some of the more psychological or metaphysical stuff and found myself lost. And so... I was going to ask, you were talking about how some of the writers you visited along the traveling feast just kept writing their artists for life and they felt like they needed to do it because it's what they do. I was wondering how you became an artist from being a petroleum geologist. I, I am curious. What drew you to art? What made you realize you could do it? It's such a strange idea that one should become a writer based on having read something. You would think when you read a book that you love, it would just make you want to read more books to repeat the sensation. 
But so many writers come to writing by having read something that uh, makes them want to write. It just doesn't make sense to me. But that's how it was for me. I read a novella by Jim Harrison called Legends of the Fall. And the specific imagery of it, as well as the larger story, really struck me. He covered 100 years and 100 pages in this saga. But the first page was a yellow leaf, a cottonwood leaf, going down river and pacing itself against a boulder in the center of the stream. Yeah, I thought, okay, I want to try this. I didn't know why, and I still don't. But that's how it happened. Yeah, I was a geologist, and then I read that novella and thought, okay, I'm going to write. For a little while, I thought I'd do both. And writing just took over. I will say, having been an oil and gas geologist, I learned a lot in the making of maps, the prospecting, the exploration of buried strata and underground structures that you can't see. That's a lot what writing is like. So I was learning to write without realizing I was learning to write. So when I left geology and went over to story writing, it was pretty much the same skill set. Indeed, there's layers of history. I, I don't know if you know, because he's from Montana, and I believe he lives there still. We interviewed Jack Horner, the paleontologist. But what he said to me, and I guess that this would apply to somehow like reading the earth, reading the land. And so when he looks at mountains or some rock formations, he goes into deep time and he sees there was a river here. He's going back centuries and centuries where the rock formations are actually the crystallization of a river. It's a case of imagination and intuition, I guess, whether you're prospecting or trying to find sources of minerals or different things. And I think that it would all apply. And as you said, I think it's a very nice way to train your imagination. When you're learning something by osmosis, you don't realize you're learning just like learning language as a child. You don't know that you're really doing that. It's not effortful, like in a class, I'm studying my MFA or something. There's less pressure. If that's the way it was for you, did you ever look at those early writings or did you collect the accumulation of those early writings for your first novel, The Watch? I think it's a great point. I don't go back and look at early writings, but I do think that's certainly how I learned was through the osmosis of doing other things, whether it was looking for oil and gas or football. I loved football as a young man, and the logic of the game's rules made a lot of sense to me. Exploit the unexploited territory on the field, run to set up the pass to set up the run. There's a riverine, sinuous narrative to moving the ball down the field or preventing it from being moved down the field. And yet there's also this brute physical of imposing one's will upon one's opposition. And this is all metaphor for art. Sometimes you're delicate, sometimes you go right for the throat. Being a hunter has helped teach me how to write through osmosis without thinking about writing. Again, you have just a few clues. You're mindful and conscious of a lot of things, a lot of things not to do, which is how it is in writing. Like, don't go in with the wind at your back or they'll smell you coming. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's kind of like writing. Don't use adverbs. Don't tell. A lot of negative situational awarenesses. Yeah, maybe anything you learn can help you be a writer when you switch over to it, as long as you know that thing, that other thing. I, know I think there's so many beautiful rhythms in nature. And I'm not a hunter, but I was around a bit of in that, as I said, my childhood when my dad would take me to Montana. So I have some experiences. Of course, animals, like if you watch a, an eagle, when they have its prey, they're not warning it. The camera can't even follow it. It's just so immediate. I think that those kind of rhythms are something we don't need to explain too much in fiction. The reader is quite smart and intuitive if we allow their imagination to do heavy lifting for us. I like that when it happens, yes. In your family, whether they were writers or oral storytellers, who were some of the storytellers you might have grew up around that has strong voices in that sense, an heir for the dramatic? My dad 
is a good storyteller, always has been. My mom was a teacher and she loved stories. She loved books and reading. While my dad was more, he enjoys reading too, but he enjoys the spoken stories, the oral histories, telling stories that his father told him, my grandfather. We read a lot about oral traditions changing across generations. And even our own stories change within various iterations. But I just realized thinking about my dad's stories, they never changed. They were the same details. The emphasis might be different in each telling, but we knew how the story was going to go. We knew how it was going to end. We knew what the setup was going to be. We always knew what the story was going to play out the same way. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting question. Why would you keep listening to it if you've already heard it before? Where's the value in that? Where's the comfort in that? I think that's something about the musicality or like a refrain. The best songs, you really Mm. can listen and listen to them. And the best storytellers, they can read you a telephone directory. (laughs) And suddenly you're wondering about who are these people? They're so interesting. So I think it's also the part of the performing arts that comes into it. Yeah. And to your point, the context, when do you hear that song, even though you've heard it before, so that you hear it differently? And when does the singer present it? Or when does the storyteller present it? Like you go to a concert, you heard those songs, but the little preamble before and the the setup, the situation. Yeah, it's not just the content, it's the context. And so we've been discussing it a bit, but what for you is the importance of the environmental humanities and drawing people into taking action, harassing their local legislators and making the small individual changes? I think the challenge for our time as activists and as citizens is choosing meaningful battles, choosing battles that will not crush us, choosing, which is to say, things that have an element of fun to them. And again, that's why we're bringing music to climate aid. It makes it easier for people to engage. Like, okay, if you can help defend against climate change by listening to music and by really considering the piece of wood that is making that music, that's a win. I think we have to change the style of our engagement as activists. I think we have to do something that's, I hate using all these cliches, more sustainable. The old patterns of fighting until one is worn down to the bone, that's not working. We have to find new models, new ways of defending and celebrating our values and, again, imposing our will on the opposition. And if we're not having fun, whatever that looks like, whether it's individually or as a group, I think the opposition is so large and so strong that we can't play by their rules, which are brute force and crushing and fighting. I think we have to be more creative. That's something we can do that that they don't do as well. I'm speaking in abstractions now, but I just keep coming back to that guitar, that 315-year-old spruce tree. I mean, it took light from above. It took sunlight, converted it to fiber, to wood. It retained the rhythms and patterns of that growth, that sunlight in its wood, and that is communicated through the tone of the music coming from the guitar. It's essentially sunlight captured, and it's also got the nutrition from the forest floor, the soil that the roots took their nurturing sustenance from. It is literally the voice of the forest. And that's a long way of saying finding different ways to fight. I said the F word. Finding different ways to engage, finding different ways to celebrate, finding different ways to resist, and to have something positive be in those ways. Yes, indeed. And not wasting, as you say, that instrument that can be used, if it's taken care of, it can be used for over 100 years. And it's storytelling and bringing community and joy to people. We live, it's evident, in such a, a disposable society, and we're obsessed with novelty. But I think that's one the thing that the arts can also do. It can make you want less. It can make you just take joy in a story, which could be just words on a page or a voice in a room. And so, 
as you think about the future, our generation, but particularly the younger generation, their whole worldview is being informed by AI and the new technologies. And as you reflect on those, what role do you think artists and humanities scholars should play, perhaps governance or guiding the philosophical framework? I do feel like it, it's in this chaos, in this crisis, in this fragmentation, there is opportunity. And I do think that artists are in a position to lead where previously they have not been. And I think it's for those reasons that you mentioned when humanity is, has been benumbed, desensitized from so much external advertising stimuli, people are hungry for something real, something not artificial, for a natural intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. And that is, to my thinking, one that is more inclusive of other forms of intelligence, not just humans, but that of the natural world, the intelligence of animals, the intelligence of geology, the intelligence of fully formed ecosystems and functions. I think we're hungry for as we lose our humanity, as we sense and see it becoming not just marginalized, but again, desensitized, I think we're really hungry for stories about what it's like to touch, taste, scent, smell, see, hear. It's that simple. That's what artists do. That's what we're best at is conveying those five senses. And I think those five senses are becoming withered and atrophied in, to us culturally. And so as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people, young writers or young activists to know, preserve and remember? As soon as you asked that question, I went to a joke. And so I, forgive me for sharing it. It's a picture of Willie Nelson and he's shaking his finger saying, young people, I really want you to think about what kind of world you're going to be leaving behind for me and Keith Richards. I think it's the same as it ever was. We want to preserve that which we love. What are our values? I mean, it's like a time capsule. We're bearing something beneath the wave of the future that we hope we'll be able to be dug up and handled and marveled at like real craft, not cheap, flimsy stuff. Whether that's a story, a poem, a song, a vase, we want to make things that matter and that last. There's a great Guy Clark song, Stuff That Lasts. I love that idea. Thank you, Rick Bass, for your deep empathy and engagement as a writer and activist and your stories that help us sense, see, hear, so that we remember our values and what we love. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Claire Tolliver with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Claire Tolliver. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our Creative Community Exhibitions podcasts or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.